What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Perhaps you are an Episcopalian and you've got questions about the Catholic, uh, well, the, the, the season of Advent, let's just say, and why Catholics believe this and they don't believe that over there. What about that? Well, let's let's talk about that. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that ctc@ewtn.com. Michael McCall is our producer, Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming on both platforms right now. Uh, Look for the box that says comments. That's where you want to put your question, and then Jeff will see it. He'll shoot it to us here in Studio One, and uh, we're off to the races. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. First of all, can you believe that we're almost to Christmas? You know, it sneaks up on us every year, doesn't it? It, it really does, and especially this is a, a rather short one because, as you know, the fourth week of Advent is like it's not in days. It's counted in hours. Oh, that's true. That's very, true. very short. Yep. So here's something that we received just today from a listener named Kent, and you may remember this because it's actually uh, something that came up on this show um, Monday before last. He says, on Monday, December 11th, I called in with a question as to whether it would be better to characterize purgatory as a place of healing rather than as a place of punishment. Dr. Anders responds that the use of the word punish derives from nuances of the Latin word from which it is translated. My thought is that very few English speakers are acquainted with the nuances of the Latin language, and when they hear the word punish, they envision inflicted pain and not the fact that it might be necessarily incidental to the spiritual healing that is being accomplished. They may indeed find the idea of, quote, snow-covered dung to be preferable to be perfect even as the Father is perfect, especially if the latter involves discomfort in its attainment. The Catechism of the Catholic Church uses the word punishment in its description of purgatory at least three times. I think that should be changed to emphasize the curing and healing of spiritual flaws, especially in the interest of evangelization. In Christ, Kent. Yeah, Kent, I appreciate the question. I completely agree with you that the nuances of of, uh, Latin etymology would be lost on most uh, modern English-speaking Catholics. I only brought that up to suggest that I think there's something to your objection. Ah. And, and, and my point was that that when you, when you dig into the word poina in Latin and the way it's used in medieval theology, it can have this note, this connotation of a curative uh, uh, factor in one's life. It's not, it's not just uh, retributive. There can be a, a curative healing aspect to what's meant by, publish, by punishment. So even in a Latin context, you're... you're uh, 
your views on purgatory, I think, have uh, have some basis to them. I don't object to them. Um, there is there's clearly a lot of punishment language in the tradition. You find that unhelpful. Um, that's all right. You're, you're entitled to that opinion. Uh, would it be better for apologetic or evangelistic purposes to emphasize the curative aspects of purgatory more? <coughs> I I, uh, I actually think that's true. I agree with you. And when I—it's been a while since I looked at this, but when I looked at the places that purgatory appeared in the documents of the Second Vatican Council, and I wrote an article on this years and years ago, so I'm not going to get the details right— but I, I seem to remember that there was more of that curative personalist aspect to the, okay. the, the language about purgatory in the, do, in the documents of the council than, say, you know, compared to the Council of Trent. Yeah. Uh, and so I think you're, you're basically on the right track there. Now, your, your, your statement seems to be kind of a non sequitur, that, that there are those who would prefer the Protestant notion of, imputa- of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the Catholic notion of purification. Well, I'm sure that's true. Sure, there are people that would prefer that, and there are some people that would prefer to win the lottery rather than build their own corporation too. I mean, you know, I mean, like, yeah, so right, but that would be—I would regard that as a kind of flaw, um, a bug, not a feature of of uh, of human spiritual consciousness. That the appropriate disposition is for us to want to be cleaned up, not simply to be accounted righteous for Christ's sake, but to want to become actually righteous. And the fact that my natural inclinations shy away from that—that that I lack fortitude and perseverance—and I'd like the easy way out doesn't make that a noble aspiration. Kent, thanks so much uh, for your email. Really appreciate that. Scott is chiming in here on YouTube. Scott says, Why would God allow a child who gets murdered to be born in the first place? Yeah, so I have absolutely no idea whatsoever. I mean, I cannot give you a reason why some particular child suffers some particular atrocity, and I find it as offensive and horrifying and unintelligible as you do. Now, what the Catholic faith says is that when evil happens, God has a purpose, that there's some reason, there's some intelligibility to it that it may not be apparent to us in this life and hopefully will become apparent to us in the next. God has a f- sufficient reason for allowing it. It doesn't necessarily mean that he shares his sufficient reason with us. And so the disposition of faith is to say, well, you know, not my will, but thine be done. God is good, and so what God wills must at some level be good, even though I can't understand it. Scott, thanks so much uh, for your question via YouTube today. And Ira uh, brings up this question. How would someone know if they have the Holy Spirit? Right. So that's actually what the Sacrament of Confirmation is meant to indicate. It's supposed to give us a tangible, objective sign uh, of the gift of the Spirit, accompanied by the promise of Christ that the sacraments are intrinsically efficacious. So when the uh, when the bishop lays hands on you and anoints your forehead and says, receive the Holy Spirit, you can have the confidence that, in fact, the Holy Spirit is imparted to you. There is not, however, some kind of infallible interior intuition whereby I can necessarily discern the presence of the Spirit in my life. So, I mean, there are there may be signs and indications, but they're not infallible. They give us nothing more than a kind of moral certainty, a kind of basis for confident hope. Uh, but it's always possible that we're deceiving ourselves. And, I mean, if you look at church history or Christian experience in the contemporary world, the number of people that claim to act under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who are engaged in nothing other than manifest nonsense, is quite large. Wow. And uh, Ira, thank you so much for your email. In a moment, we'll get to the phones. We've got wide-open phones right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. 
As we are inching our way closer and closer to Christmas Day, it is called a communion on this Thursday, just before Christmas, here on EWTN. Uh, calls are coming in, but we still have two lines open. You can snag one right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. In the meanwhile, let me tell you about something wonderful now available from EWTN's religious catalog. It is the Clothed with Strength Ladybug Apron. In a fun design, this white apron features a quote from Proverbs. She is clothed with strength and dignity, and she laughs without fear of the future. That's the quote from Proverbs. That quote is surrounded by a wreath of pink flowers and green leaves with three ladybugs. Why are we talking about ladybugs? Well, the ladybug legend comes from the Middle Ages when a group of villagers prayed to Our Lady for their crops to be saved from a plague of aphids. Suddenly, swarms of bright red beetles appeared and ate all the aphids, saving the crops from destruction. In Thanksgiving, the villagers named the strange beetles Our Lady's Bugs so that they would forever remember how Our Lady's intercession rescued them from death. And the funny thing is, I was telling this because uh, I read this, I was fascinated by it. So I told my wife, Adrienne, she goes, oh, yeah, I know about all about Our Lady's Bugs. I know that's old news. Really? <laughs> anyway, this apron is a one-size-fits-all. It has two wide pockets for carrying recipes, your phone, or other important articles. It's a polyester and cotton twill blend. You can also check out other apron styles, and they're all available at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic. EWTNRC.com. We're going to get to the phones in just a moment here. Our phone number, 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Aaron's watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Aaron says, in light of the recent document from the Vatican, we've been talking about it lately, I know I will get questions from my Protestant family at Christmas. Can you please clarify how exactly a blessing differs from from a prayer for someone? Yeah, thanks. So uh, all blessings are prayers. Not all prayers are blessings. Ah, okay. So a blessing is a, uh, a formal way of invoking God's help or God's presence upon a person or an object or an event uh, in a more or less solemn fashion. And when it's pronounced by a priest, it has the character of a sacramental. Not a sacrament, but a sacramental. Okay. Um, and uh, so I, I don't know why the distinction between blessing and prayer would be relevant in dialogue with your Protestant uh, family, I'm sure what has occasioned the question is they're going to want to know why has the Pope said that priests can bless homosexual couples. And so I know we're going to get a thousand questions on this over the next year, and I've answered it already, but I'm going to answer it again so it'll be clarified. What the Church said, what the Pope said, is that if a homosexual person who's involved in a homosexual relationship comes to the priest and asks him for a blessing, that in the proper circumstances, with prudence, and not under every condition, but under some conditions, the priest can respond to that request and bless the person, but not the union. Okay. And and uh, in that respect, I mean, let's say you have a relative that you believe is engaged in an intrinsically immoral behavior. Isn't praying for that person the proper disposition? Yeah. And so a blessing is nothing other than a request for God's favor and God's help and God's grace upon a particular person in their state of life. And if what their state of life needs is repentance and change, then implicitly that's what you're asking God to do. 
Yeah, there you go. Uh, Aaron, thanks so much for your question via YouTube this afternoon. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with Susan in Columbia, Missouri, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hey there, Susan. A blessed Advent to you. What's on your mind today? Um, I was just wondering if the Pope's latest statement on the blessing of same-sex marriages is considered under the infallibility. No, it is not. It's not infallible. It's not infallible teaching. Okay. Appreciate your call, Susan. Hey, that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Let's go to uh, Peter now. Peter's in Colorado Springs, listening on Sirius XM 130. Hello, Peter. Uh, Happy Advent to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Where is the Garden of Eden? Um, Thank you. I appreciate the question. The Garden of Eden can be found in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's nowhere other than the first three chapters of Genesis. So you would not take a left turn at Albuquerque, and there it is. You cannot take a left turn at Albuquerque and find it. You're not going to find it anywhere on the con- contemporary geological scene of planet Earth, but you will find it in the first three books, the first three, first three chapters of the Bible. Peter, that's a great question. Uh, please call us again sometime. Call to communion here on EWTN. Judy wants to know, what is our individual responsibility regarding evangelization? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So it depends entirely on your state of life depends entirely on your state of life. So let's say, for example, that you are a married person in the Catholic Church in a sacramental marriage. Well, in that case, your state of life is meant to be a reflection of the reality of Christ's self-sacrificial love for the Church. So by living your vocation of married life and family life with faith and virtue and generosity— you will be demonstrating to the world the truth of the gospel by your mode of life, all right, through marriage. Okay. Uh, let's say you're a Catholic religious, and perhaps you're a Dominican sister, and so your charism, your vocation is to religious life, and your charism is through teaching, mm-hmm. but your particular talent has to be happens to be in the math classroom, right? And so what you're going to do is you're going to go into that math classroom every day, and you're going to just teach the living daylights out of math, for the love of the child and for the love of God and for the love of the church uh, while wearing your habit and praying the daily office and going to Mass and living in community and living joyfully and fully as a Dominican person out in the world. And it's pretty conspicuous when you're a Dominican out in the world because you wear funny clothes and everybody looks (laughs) at you. Why is that lady in funny clothes? But it's a powerful witness. You know, your corporate life together demonstrates the truth of the gospel in that mode of life. Um, You know, let's say you're a single person. You're not married. You're not religious, um, and all of your uh, all of your friends and associates are running around like wild hooligans doing things that young people do. And you say, "No, I'm I'm going to stay sober and chaste. I'll go shoot pool with you, and I might even laugh at you while you're getting drunk. But I'm going to stay sober and chaste. Thank you very much. And I'm a, I'm going to be a I'm not going to be a prude about it. I'm going to be have good you know kind of a good humor about it and uh-huh. keep my sanity about me. But I'm going to be sober and chaste because I love God and I love the church and I respect my own body and I respect your person. Um, that was a guy I went to college with. I went to college with a fellow who was a, a Catholic. He had gone to Jesuit high school in Dallas, Texas, and uh, and you know I went to uh, 
let's say, a celebrated university in the city of New Orleans where sober and chaste were not the watchwords of the day. I'll put it that way. <laughs> okay. okay. And, uh, and this fellow was conspicuous uh, on the second floor of our dorm for being sober and chaste when the rest of the world was not. Wow. And uh, he, uh, he wore this crucifix around his neck, and everybody knew that he was Catholic. He wasn't real showy about it. He wasn't boastful. He wasn't overbearing. But, uh, but we all knew that, that you know, he, he lived his faith, and his faith was him, and he was a, he was a fun guy to be around, and he was of good humor, but, but uh, you know, he was sober and chaste. And that, that spoke to me a lot, deeply, believe it or not, mm. in my life. And it was one of those things that I thought, you know, there's a Catholic who lives his faith with sincerity, and that, that was meaningful to me. Uh, if you're a priest, obviously, you live your vocation of, of celebrating the sacraments worthily, and you live an exemplary life, hopefully, and imitate Christ's love for the Church. So it really depends on your state of life. Uh, very few people, I think, have the charism, the specific giftedness of, say, being able to walk up to a stranger on the street and say, hey, have you ever heard about Jesus and the Catholic Church? And to pull that off in a compelling way that can move people to faith. There are some that can do that. There are ministries like the St. Paul Street Evangelization yes. that train people in that kind of direct outreach. And, uh, and there are those who are very gifted in that. But if that's not your gifting, you find the place where you're gifted and you live your Catholic faith with sincerity and generosity and publicly and be salt and light in the world, and you're doing your part for evangelization in that way. Judy, thanks so much for your great question. It's called a communion here on EWTN. One line available right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Chris is in Tulsa, listening on the great Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Hey there, Chris. Blessed Advent to you. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. Um, my question was, uh, what did uh, St. Gregory Nantianza mean uh, when he said that the unassumed is the unhealed, and um, if that, uh, the answer to that question has to do something with the doctrine of salvation, to what extent does the Roman Catholic Church um, adhere or, or um, agree or hold to that doctrine of salvation? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So Gregory of Nazianzus said that whatever is not assumed is not healed. What he meant by that was the assumption of a human nature by Christ, the second person of the Trinity— was incarnate, became a man, born of the Virgin Mary, and when he did so, he assumed a human nature. Now, there was a 4th century heresy called Apollinarianism that held that the nature that the second person assumed was the body of a human being, but not the mind or soul of a human being, and that the divine Logos, the second person, uh, uh, suited the person Jesus for a mind, that he didn't have a distinct human mind or soul in addition to the intellect of the divine Logos. And Nazianzus's point was that if Christ did not assume the entirety of a human person, including a human mind, a human soul, a human will, then since the purpose of the Incarnation was to, was to uh, fuse divinity to a perfected humanity, well, the part of the human person that needs perfecting is our soul. Sure. I mean, like, the body comes along for the ride. You get the resurrection of the body and all, and immortality and all that. But at the end of the day, it's really the soul that, that is driving the ship. Yeah. And so if, if the soul isn't healed through the incarnation, then, then, you know, what good is it to get rid of my athlete's foot? <laughs> right, you know? And so you have to—the the second person has to assume the entirety of a human nature, including the human soul. Otherwise, the incarnation would seem to be for naught. 
Chris, and, and does the Catholic Church affirm that? You betcha we affirm that. Yeah. So Nazianzus died in 390, but that theology was defined as dogma in the year 450 at the Council of Chalcedon. And, of course, it was Pope Leo who, who, uh, who, who derived the formula for the Council of Chalcedon that ultimately entered into uh, the dogmatic tradition of the Catholic Church East and West. Chris, thanks for checking in from Tulsa. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Natalie now. Natalie is in Houston listening on YouTube. Hello there, Natalie. Blessed Advent to you as well. What's on your mind today? Hi, good afternoon. Um, thank you so much for taking my call, and thank you so much for all that you guys do. Um, I just had lunch with a good friend of mine today, and um, she's in a relationship. She's been um, dating her now fiancé for six years, and they've been living together for most of that time. Um, they got engaged just a few months ago, and we're planning to have a, a wedding next fall. However, um, today she had told me that they actually are pregnant now, um, and she said that they both, quote-unquote, were like raised in strict Catholic families, but um, I know that they've been falling away for a long time and no longer practice. Um, so I mentioned when she had said that they were planning to put off their wedding now until the following spring, um, asked her if they were thinking possibly about getting married in, in the church, since I know they're both um, baptized Catholic. And she kind of asked a question, like, is it bad to get married in the church? Like, don't, you know, don't Catholics frown upon my situation? And I kind of stumbled through a response, and I was hoping that Dr. Anders might be able to give me a better one and possibly help me to give her some encouragement to seek answers in the church and learning more about the process of uh, receiving the sacrament of matrimony and just maybe any advice that I could on how I could approach that topic with her. Oh, yeah, thanks. So uh, it's, it's really a shame that your friend has the understanding that she does, because, of course, she's dead wrong on the Church's position. So um, the, the Church would absolutely fall all over itself, would do backflips in joy at the prospect of her marrying in the Church, and, and even more so because she's pregnant. So, so, you know, the Church doesn't presume that people live a perfectly holy life as a requirement for becoming Catholic or returning to the Catholic faith. We presume the exact opposite, that the, the one surefire requirement for coming into the Church is that you must be a confirmed sinner, <laughs> right? Your life had better be a wreck, and you need grace, right? Otherwise, what's the point of us, right, as the Catholic Church? Yeah. The Church is a hospital for sinners, not a school for saints. It's a school for saints, too, but it's first and foremost a hospital for sinners. So, you know, somebody that's pregnant out of wedlock well, they really, really need the grace of God to give them what you know what what's necessary to to live that marriage life with uh, with with virtue and with charity and with supernatural power. They really need that sacrament of matrimony, and and no, no one's going to look askance at them. And look, priests, they do this all day long. I mean, they have people come to them because they want to get married in the Catholic Church because they think the architecture is pretty. Like for the for the darndest reasons, people want to get married in the Catholic Church, and very often their moral lives are really out of kilter, really out of kilter. And many priests have have skillful means of navigating those difficult conversations with people, and they they understand the virtues of gradualism. So it's maybe once in a while you'll get a hard nosed priest, but most of the time they understand. Like if I if I drop the 10-ton brick of all of Catholic moral theology on these people in my first meeting, I'm going to scare them off. And they don't do that. They're more sensitive than that. I mean, uh, Tom and I both know a priest mutually who has a has a tricky little way of doing this where he does the whole interview and asks uh, the respective members of the couple for their, for their addresses. And um, that's his 
I think he asks them separately. He asks them separately, and that's his tricky little way of finding out if they're cohabitating. <laughs> and then he might gently raise the question about, maybe you guys might want to abstain for the next nine months or six months or whatever it is before the wedding. But uh, very skillful, very discreet. You know, and so absolutely, yeah, she should, she should, she should want the grace of the sacrament of matrimony, and we would not by any means chase her away. Absolutely. Uh, Natalie, thank you so much for your call. In a moment, we'll be talking with Mike in Portland, Chris in Columbus, also Steve in uh, Peachtree City, Georgia, not too far from us, Diane, who is in Atlanta, Georgia. Looks like two lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Call to communion on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called to communion on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. If you'd like to get that question of yours answered before Christmas, today would be a great day to do it. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Congratulations going out to another wonderful member of the EWTN radio family. That would be Catholic Radio of Marshalltown, Iowa, now celebrating 20 years with us. They've got uh, a station in English and a station in Spanish there in Marshalltown, Iowa. Oh, man. Bob Dick and his wonderful team there at Catholic Radio of Marshalltown, our sincere congratulations to you, my friend, from all of us here at EWTN Radio. All right, now let us go to uh, Steve. Steve is a first-time caller in Peachtree City, Georgia, listening on The Quest. Hey there, Steve. What's on your mind today, sir? Hello, yes. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, There were some readings by Luke uh, uh, for the Gospel this week. I think the first reading, I think it was Tuesday, was when um, Angel Gabriel came down and told Zachariah that his wife Elizabeth would, would would have a son. And he didn't believe him. He said, well, how can that be? She's barren. And the angel said, um, well, it, it is going to happen. And, um, and he said, because you didn't believe me, you're going to be mute until the baby is born. And then I think it was the next day, the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary and tells Mary that she's going to have a son and to name him Jesus. And she said, how is that going to happen? Because I have no relations with a man. And the angel does not make her mute because she didn't believe him. So I'm wondering why that, why there's the difference there. Yeah, thanks. So the text does not say that Mary did not believe the angel. doesn't say that. And in fact, she finishes with her fiat, be it done to me according to thy word. I think what's going on with Mary is not that she doesn't believe, but she would like details. Since, since she has taken a vow of virginity, and, and like you, she knows that, generally speaking, marital relations are, are a necessity or a prerequisite of becoming pregnant, she says, okay, that's fine, I'm going to get pregnant. How exactly is this going to happen? She's curious she's, about Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just okay. let me know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on board, but just what, what am I signing up for here? You know, what exactly has this going to go down? Mm. Whereas Zachariah's attitude is one of disbelief. Okay. Appreciate that. Steve, thanks for your call, and a Merry Christmas to you, sir. Here is Diane now in Atlanta listening on YouTube. A blessed uh, Advent to you as well. Diane, what's on your mind today? Yeah, thank you. So um, I have a sister whose daughter's in a same-sex relation, and um, she was her daughter was thrilled that about the uh, Pope's move. However, she wasn't. 
But maybe I oversimplified this, but I told her that nothing's new. I said, you know, we've given blessings to murders on death row, that pest to, to anybody, you know, that that's a sinner that needs help. So how is this, why is this new? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So th- there's nothing new, nothing changed in the Church's moral catechesis concerning human sexuality or the nature of marriage or the sacrament of marriage. Nothing of that has changed at all. Uh, the only thing that's new that I can see is that the Pope has written a document. Really, honestly, I mean, that like, he, he's written a document that he, he didn't have to write that's, that explicitly calls attention to the fact that a priest could spontaneously pray for someone who was in an immoral situation, you know, if asked. And I, the way I look at it, the, the point of the document is just to draw pastoral attention to people in our culture, in our society, that are alienated from the Church because of her moral catechesis, and telling priests, more or less, it's okay to minister to these people. Not, and, and, but he goes out of his way to, to say, you're not blessing the union. Right. You're not condoning the union. You're regarding the request for blessing as a request for God's help. And the document specifically states that the kind of grace that is anticipated here is what the Church calls actual grace. Actual grace is the grace that can be active in the life of a hardened sinner. Sanctifying grace cannot. Sanctifying grace is the grace that, in fact, makes us actually holy. And so the document says that you can the request for blessing should be understood as a request for actual grace. That is the kind of grace that moves us to acts of repentance. Okay. Appreciate that. Uh, Diane, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much for your call. Here now, Chris, a first-time caller from Columbus, listening on the Blowtorch, a uh, St. Gabriel Radio, AM 820. Hey there, Chris. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, thank you for taking my call. Uh, just a quick story slash question. I was with a co-worker to a Presbyterian church a couple weeks ago, and during the service, uh, uh, they did the Lord's Prayer. And as we get to the part where, you know, forgive me my trespasses, they said debts and debtors instead of trespasses. And except for me, of course, I said, you know, trespasses. And when I lifted my head, looked at, you know, opened my eyes, it seemed like everybody was looking at me like I did something wrong by saying the trespass against us of debts and debtors. I was just curious what the history of that is, why maybe the Presbyterians do that. And then on top of that, after uh, the service, we went to lunch, and I made a comment about the altar, and I was corrected that it's not an altar, it's a communion table in the Presbyterian Church. I'm just curious what the what the history is, or what what the rationale behind that was. That's okay. it. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. So the the Latin text of the Lord's Prayer is debitoribus nostris, right? Our debts. Ah. Okay. And well, etymologically, uh, it's uh, it's more similar to the English word debt. It's it is legitimately translated either way. Uh, when I was in seminary, we used to joke about this because. Uh, Lutherans and Baptists would say trespasses, and Presbyterians would say debts, and we would laugh and say that's because pre- Presbyterians have capital and Baptists have property. Right. <laughs> you know, um, but really, it's it's six to one, half dozen to the other. Jesus didn't speak English, and the original prayer would have been in Aramaic, and I have no idea what the Aramaic word used. What the idea is, someone has 
trespassed against us, someone owes us, someone has offended us, and the underlying concept is more or less the same. It's interchangeable, and it's just a matter of convention whether you use one or the other. Now, as a matter of course, any particular liturgical community has got to decide on one version because Mm -hmm. they have to say it together. Sure. Right? And so it's, you know, some some communities say death, some communities say trespasses, doesn't really matter. Um, In terms of people looking at you askance because you use the quote-unquote wrong word, um, I'm not sure where we're calling from today. Um, We're calling from... um, from from VA. So, uh, no, not from, where are we calling from? Uh, he's already hung up. He's already hung up. Okay, yeah. That's why I couldn't figure out where he was calling from. Um, you know, down here in uh, in Baptist land, where I'm from. Columbus. Columbus, Columbus okay. Ohio. Columbus, Ohio. I mean, we're such a mishmash of denominations that anybody who's prayed at an ecumenical meeting has run into this problem. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's very familiar, and we all kind of laugh and joke about it. No sure. one is offended at all. Right. Um, now, the other question was about uh, the altar table. Yeah, exactly. Um, th- yeah, this is, a, this is a significant difference. This is a significant difference because, see, an altar is a table that's used for sacrifice, and, uh, or it's a stand that's used for sacrifice. And in, in Catholic theology— uh, the Holy Eucharist is a sacrifice that we offer to God. And in, in most Protestant theology, uh, they adamantly deny that. It's a, it is a dogma of most Protestant churches that the Eucharist is emphatically not a sacrifice. And so they get quite touchy about the language of altar um, because uh, if, they, if they know their own tradition, mm. because they do not conceptualize the Eucharist as a sacrifice, whereas Catholics do. Okay. Appreciate that. And thanks for your call from Columbus today here on Call to Communion. Just got a kind of a funny thing here from Nancy watching us on Facebook. She says, uh, hi, Tom and Dr. Anders. I've heard you mention gradualism a few times now. Where is that in the Bible? She's making a joke. She says, just kidding. Seriously, though, can you unpack the term gradualism? Love you guys. You're changing lives. Yeah, thanks. So even though I know you asked tongue-in-cheek, the concept of gradualism is implied by the very scope and narrative of biblical revelation, mm. because because God's revelation to mankind from Genesis to Revelation is a gradual unfolding of the full plan of God. Oh, I mean, okay. The pedagogy of God, the technical term in catechesis is uh-huh. the pedagogy of God, is moving people from a condition of of, of superstition and idolatry and, and so forth towards greater, greater knowledge uh, of, uh, of the moral law and ultimately to the principles of the Incarnation. And Jesus' own earthly ministry witnesses, evidences uh, many different modes of engagement depending on the, on the community that he was speaking to. So Matthew chapter 13, for example, the disciples say to Jesus, why do you teach the people in parables? And he says, I teach them in parables because I do not want them to understand. And 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 that's the exact opposite of what you think he's going to say. Yeah. I mean, that the the standard misinterpretation is that Christ taught in parables because they're easy to understand. He says the opposite. He teaches in parables because they're hard to understand. And you say, well, why on earth would he want to be hard to understand? And I think the reason why is that uh, emphatically, Christ does not want to give the impression that adherence to the gospel is is a matter of adhering to a proposition or to an ideological position, that if I'm just signing on the, the bottom line and confessing, you know, that, okay, Jesus is the Messiah, then, then I'm scot-free. He, he repudiates that. He says, many people will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I never knew you, right? What's required is a change of life. But the change of life is not merely one of following ritual prescriptions, which one could do without a change of heart. It requires a real change of perspective, a conversion, uh, a transformation of one's consciousness. And that is something that can only happen gradually. And so Christ teaches in parables to bring people along psychologically mm-hmm. to a new realization of their, of their real moral condition and their state of life. 
um, his uh, his practice of eating with tax collectors and sinners, the provocative way that he would stand up in the synagogue and and challenge people with, is it right to to heal on the Sabbath or not? He knows the answer to the question. He's trying to be deliberately provocative. His whole ministry was this pedagogy and trying to provoke moral change in people over time, not simply to lay down one law and say, you're either on this side or you're on the other side. It was an Mm, attempt to move people across the line using whatever skillful means were necessary. And of course, the whole scope of biblical revelation takes takes that nature of a gradual progressive revelation towards greater and greater clarity and holiness. St. Paul talks about the the secret that was kept hidden in ages past, now only revealed through God's holy prophets and apostles. Um, And um, what was the second part of the question? One was, where is gradualism in the Bible? What was the other one? That was it. That was it. She just wanted to know about that. And And what does gradualism mean? Yeah. So in in modern pastoral theology, what gradualism means is that, uh, you know, if you take somebody who is, say, deeply enmeshed in, uh, in habitual sin and say, just stop, man, just stop. It's probably not going to work, right, right? Right. And and there's there's good psychology and science on this that that willpower is a vanishing resource, right? That's why things like the twelve steps are important in uh, in recovery groups, because people have tried the willpower route to kick bad habits or kick addictions, and they find that it doesn't work. Yeah. You you need something that's more transformative. And and it uh, easy does it one day at a time. All these slogans that come out of yeah. out of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? They they speak to that reality that you you you're not just going to be able to lay down an imperative on someone, and go and have them turn 180 and go from darkness to light in a day. I'm I'm thinking here of uh, you know in in your dining room you may have a light switch that is off or on, but you also might have a dimmer where you can get, slide it up a little bit every day. That's right. That's yeah. right. There you go. I appreciate that, Nancy. Thanks for your it's, kind words. Yep, go ahead. All right. Uh, moving on here, it is called a communion on EWTN. This weekend, it is an EWTN radio tradition, the 48 hours of Christmas. A lot of folks really look forward to this. You can join us all day Christmas Eve day and Christmas Day itself. We have special programs, music from around the world, and so much more. This year, for the first time, we're going to bring on Anthony Caniglio uh, with musical reflections on the true meaning of Christmas. This is an amazing young man who not only plays the piano fabulously, but he also unpacks the meaning behind each of the songs that you're going to be hearing in this program. Again, musical reflections on the true meaning of Christmas. Uh, And there's also our own Mother Angelica uh, on 48 Hours called uh, What Will You Give Christ for Christmas? We'll also be having our usual assortment of live broadcasts, the Mass of Christmas Eve from the Basilica in D.C., and uh, all, all the other ones from Rome, from here in uh, Irondale, Alabama, lots more. The 48 Hours of Christmas, starting Christmas Eve morning, only on EWTN Radio. And by the way, we now have a complete schedule for you. It is posted on uh, EWTN.com slash radio. Uh, just click on Schedules, and then click on 48 Hours of Christmas, and it'll tell you exactly what is on at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, right on down the line. Let's go now to uh, Helen, a first-time caller in Warrington, Virginia, listening on Sirius XM 130. Helen, uh, a blessed Advent to you. What's on your mind today? Yes, God bless you, too. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, go right ahead. Yes, okay, so I um, have always learned, always known that, the um, the Holy Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So my question is, why then is the Holy Spirit usually depicted as a dove? 
and not a person. So there three persons and one God. Mm, right. And why is the Holy Spirit a, is depicted as a dove? Right, right. Sure, sure. So when when you use the word person in this context, I take it that you are meaning a, a kind of a human person. So why not depict the human, the Holy Spirit anthropomorphically as if he had a human body, you know, hands, eyes, feet, and the rest of it. And before I go into this, I need to emphasize that when that when Catholics speak about the persons of the Trinity, we don't mean person in that sense. We, we don't mean anything anthropomorphic about God. We, you should not think of the Blessed Trinity as three human beings. That is, a, that is not the Catholic doctrine at all. The word person in this context just means uh, relational. That's all it means. It doesn't imply anything about a body or anything about shape. It just means relation. And the only relation that we're interested in here is the relation of father to son, son to father, father and son to the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's all the word person means. It doesn't mean anything beyond that. Secondly, there is iconography in the tradition that does use human persons, human bodies, as analogs or types to indicate, uh, well, icons, really, to indicate the persons of the Blessed Trinity. Particularly in the East, you will find... Uh, iconography that has three human beings representing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So really? it's not uniquely uh, the, the, the dove. Now, the reason the dove appears in the religious artwork is because the gospel tells us that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism as a dove. Hmm. So there was a dove involved that signaled the presence of the Holy Spirit to those uh, to those gathered. That's why the dove enters into the iconography as well. Okay, is that helpful for you, Helen? Yes, thank you. Thank you. You are most welcome. Call to communion here on EWTN Radio. Let's go to uh, Mike in Detroit. And let's see here. Mike is listening on the great Ave Maria Radio. Mike, a blessed Advent to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Oh, oh, blessed Advent to you. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. So I've um, recently been talking with a Protestant friend, and I heard the claim that the um, what they call the Apocrypha, or the Deuterocanonical books, were added the Bible in 1546, but just to through a little bit of research, it, I, I believe they were actually included in Septuagint, and early Jews and Christians were following those texts. So my question is, is why do they claim that it wasn't added until the 1500s, and um, what's the Protestant belief and what's the Catholic belief? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So... Uh, the the deuterocanonical texts of the Old Testament, uh, not only are they in the Old Testament, not only were they venerated by Jews and Christians in antiquity, uh, but they are referenced in the New Testament. So the vast majority of New Testament citations of the Old Testament are from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament that includes the deuterocanon. Mm. And there are many, many, many allusions to the deuterocanonical texts woven throughout the New Testament scriptures. And it would be pedantic for me to list them all. If you go look up New Testament citations of the deuterocanon in, you know, whatever your search engine is, yeah. you'll find you yeah. know, dozens okay. of them, right? Um, and then, of course, church fathers from the second century also explicitly refer to the deuterocanonical texts as authoritative. And not only do they do that, but they understand that there are textual controversies. The Church Fathers recognize that not everyone sees the Deuterocanon as authoritative, and they rebuke those that reject those texts, right? And we find that in Justin Martyr. We find that in Clement of Alexandria, the Shepherd of Hamas. Mm. Um, the first major work on Christian hermeneutics, that's the interpretation of the Bible, was by St. Augustine in the 4th century 
in a book called On Christian Doctrine. And he again specifically raises the question as to whether Christians should advert to the Hebrew or the Greek version of the Old Testament. And he says, without without uh, any hesitation, it should be the Greek precisely because it is the ecclesiastical version. That is the one that the church uses, the one the apostles use, the one that the disciples of the apostles used. So the, the, the Deuterocanon is deeply embedded in the Christian tradition, going back within the New Testament from the very beginning. The fact that it was at any point controversial takes nothing away from that. We acknowledge that, that it was controversial, and there were people who rejected it in antiquity. There were also people who rejected the dogma of the Trinity in antiquity. There were people that objected to the Incarnation in antiquity. The fact that some doctrine is controversial doesn't mean it's not a dogma. Um, the reason 1546 gets mentioned is because the Council of Trent defined it to be a dogma that the Deuterocanon was part of the Bible. Now, do you know why they waited until 1546? Why is that? Because there wasn't sufficient controversy to warrant the declaration until 1546. Ah. Right? The Church gets busy and makes an infallible declaration when something gets called into question. Right? When something that's always been a part of the deposit of faith gets called into question, then the Church says, hey, wait a minute, this has always been part of the deposit of faith. We're making this a dogma. It doesn't mean they thought it up in 1546. They affirmed what was a 1,500-year-old tradition in 1546 precisely because Protestants decided to call it into question. Why did Protestants call it into question? Well, because the Deuterocanon, excuse me, the Deuterocanon supports Catholic dogma. That's why. I mean, if you affirm the Deuterocanon, you've got to affirm prayers for the dead and, and, uh, and the veneration of saints and angels. You have to. And Protestants didn't want to do that, so they had to throw out the books of the Bible that, that supported those practices. And there you go. Appreciate that, and uh, thank you so much for your call today, Mike. It's called to Communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Paul, a first-time caller in Asheville, North Carolina, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Paul. A blessed Advent to you. What's on your mind today, sir? Thank you. Uh, I'm just trying to clarify some things. I'm a little—I'm uh, getting kind of conflicting information. Uh, in my past, I was a lapsed Catholic, and after being in the Protestant camp, I'll say, for 25 years, married, I converted, I reverted, I'm sorry, back to the Catholic Church, and then a few years later, my wife did, then my daughter, then my son. Um, my son was 17. I encouraged him not to become Catholic because I didn't think he was taking the RCIA process Correctly, I'm more logical. He's more emotional. I'm uh, more intellectual, if you will. He's more on how he feels about things. But he became Catholic anyway, I believe, because the rest of the family was. Not, then he be, went to college, became agnostic, atheist for a while, and then suddenly he meets this gal, and she's Lutheran. She is baptized, Catholic, I mean, baptized Christian in the Lutheran denomination. And my son wants to get married, and he's going to get married, and I've made my decision, but there, there's conflict within family members as to whether it's a sacramental uh, marriage or not. I can answer that very easily. I can answer that very easily. The short answer to the question is, if your son, who was received into the Catholic Church, if he marries a baptized Christian in the Lutheran Church, it will not be a valid marriage? it will not be a sacramental marriage. It will be neither valid nor sacramental. Now, if he had never become Catholic, but he were a baptized Lutheran, or baptized Baptist, or baptized Episcopalian, if you're a baptized Christian but never a Catholic, then he could realize a sacramental marriage in the Lutheran Church. So when two Lutherans get married, 
it can be a sacramental marriage. But if a Lutheran and a Catholic gets married, unless they have a dispensation from the Catholic bishop, the marriage is neither valid nor sacramental. Now, here's another situation. Let's say both of them are unbaptized. The marriage could be valid, valid marriage, but not sacramental. All right, so you have two kinds of marriage, natural marriage and sacramental marriage. A natural marriage is the union of a man and a woman who want to live together for the sake of raising a family indissolubly, whether they're baptized or not. That's a natural marriage. All right, and Adam and Eve had it. It's good. Two Buddhists can have it. Two atheists can have a valid natural marriage. Two baptized people, if, they have a, if their marriage is valid, it is automatically sacramental, if it's valid, if it's valid. For a Catholic to have a valid marriage, just a Catholic, a Catholic is obligated to marry in the Catholic Church or receive a dispensation from his bishop. If he doesn't do that, his marriage is not valid. And if it's not valid, like, by necessity, it's not sacramental. So because your son is Catholic... The only way for him to validly marry in the Lutheran Church would be for him to receive a dispensation from the local ordinary, the Catholic bishop in the diocese where he resides. The bishop could grant him a dispensation to marry in the Lutheran Church, and then he would have a marriage that would be both valid and sacramental. I doubt the bishop's going to grant the dispensation, and I doubt your son is going to ask. And so his marriage will be neither valid nor sacramental. Now, where does that leave you? All right. Um, so... Given that he's not practicing the Catholic faith and seems to have no intention to practice the Catholic faith, but he does want to make some kind of lifelong commitment to this girl, provided it's open to procreation, to the bearing of children, and he means something analogous to what Catholics mean by marriage, then it's not sacramental and it's not valid. But uh, it would be a union that, to quote the Pope, would be would reflect something of the reality of Catholic marriage, but only in a partial and an analogous way. So I would regard it as a move in the right direction rather than merely living and cohabitating together because at least is some form of moral commitment. But we should regard that moral commitment as the seed that might hopefully grow one day into the flowering of sacramentality. Maybe uh, gradualism could... Gradualism, uh, again, holds the day. There you go. Paul, what a great question. Thank you so much for it. Glad you checked in from Asheville, North Carolina. And Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN at 2 p.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio. You can check out the podcast by going to EWTN.com forward slash radio. Once you're there, look for uh, the words that say Podcast Central. If you click on that and uh, scroll down, it's in alphabetical order. Go down to the Call to Communion site and you are good to go. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. We will see you tomorrow here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless.